Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 153, Q&A with Dr. Toplinski. All of you sent in your text messages, your voicemails with some really wonderful questions, and I'm going to start to answer some of them today. I can't get to all of them because there were so many great questions, but we'll do several rounds of this type of podcast episode, and we'll start with 10 of the questions that I received and we're going to get right into it. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. My voice is a little bit run down, so bear with me for some of the sound quality during this episode. All right, let's get right into it. Question number one, is dairy safe for hormone receptor positive cancers? I get a question about dairy all the time. And the challenge with answering this question is that all of the associations that have been studied are inconsistent. There have been so many different research studies. There have been systemic reviews and meta-analyses where they take all of the data that's been done, all the research that's been done and try to aggregate it and see if they can come up with any conclusions. And they all differ slightly. Some studies show a benefit that consuming dairy reduces risk, whereas others show that consuming dairy may increase risk. So we really don't have a clear message or clear answer to this question. I think it's important to keep in mind is that not all dairy is created equal. Um, Some dairy products may be better than others. For example, like yogurt or uh, fermented dairy products may be better than whole milk in some studies, but not in all. I think it's also important to keep in mind that dairy, for example, consuming a lot of cheese may increase your cholesterol. So we want to think about it from that perspective as well. But again, we really just don't have a clear answer. Moderation is key. You know, I don't tell my patients to give up dairy. um, But, you know, if they are hoping to reduce their or improve their cholesterol, then that's something that we definitely do talk about, again, depending on what kind of dairy and how much and what you're consuming. Some people, I will say, also feel better when they give up dairy, but that's not going to be everyone. So my take on it is moderation. That is not something that I recommend that people stop consuming if they have been diagnosed with breast cancer or are looking to reduce their cancer risk. The other kind of part that comes up with that is that, you know, when you're consuming dairy, you are consuming calcium and we need calcium for good bone health. So I do tell people that if you're really not getting dairy, you want to make sure that you're getting calcium from other products, supplementing if necessary. And a lot of fortified, um, a lot of like nut milks are fortified with calcium. So that can be a way, but it's just something that you do want to be mindful of if you're cutting out dairy. Question number two, do breast implants cause breast cancer? And if so, should I have them removed? 
So some people have breast implants because they put them in to augment their breast size and others have breast implants to replace breast tissue that has been removed. So that's called reconstruction due to cancer. Um, Breast implants are also sometimes used in revision surgeries, uh, which seek to kind of correct or improve the result of an original surgery. So there's different ways in which breast implants are being used. Now, breast implants have been linked with anaplastic large cell lymphoma, certain other types of lymphoma or squamous cell carcinoma. And these are all quite rare and they tend to develop in the capsule that forms around the breast implant and not so much in the breast tissue itself for people who still have breast tissue remaining. The FDA does not recommend removal of implants if someone is asymptomatic, which is a really important point, but they do recommend that patients be aware of any changes and really monitor their implants. So if all of a sudden you developed a new swelling or persistent swelling, a mass or pain in the breast implant, any changes of the skin, hardening of the skin, or anything that just felt different, you definitely want to be aware of that and make sure that that does get evaluated. And a plastic large cell lymphoma is more linked with textured implants, and those aren't being put in anymore. Um, But there still are people who have the textured implants from before. And I will say some people have opted to get those implants removed, but the FDA at this point does not recommend removal again in the absence of any symptoms. Question three, how do you cope with having to give bad news or losing a patient? So this is a really hard one and I don't, it, it never really gets easier. When I log onto the medical record to go through my results and I see scans that show that someone's disease is progressing, or I get a call from the radiologist that they found that they see something worrisome or concerning on a scan, or if we're talking about hospice and end of life with patients and their families, those are all really challenging and difficult conversations. And what I try to do in that moment is really to provide as much support for patients and their families as I can, to provide them with the resources that they need to go through this unbelievable, challenging time in their lives. I also really believe that it's important to recognize that those conversations and those moments are really hard, not just for me, but for our medical staff and our team. These patients um, and their families are often coming to our office weekly, bi-weekly. We get to know them. We know their families and really build such a close relationship that giving space to process those difficult times and those difficult conversations is really important. And checking in with our team members and and just having some time to talk about those, you know, the the challenging moments, I think is really, really important. But I will say that it never, it never gets easier. And just try to support my patients and their families as, as best as I can. Question number four. I read ovarian suppression wasn't introduced prior to 2017. How has this affected outcome survival 
in premenopausal patients. Any relevant studies to share? This is a big topic. I can talk about it for a long time and I still wouldn't be scratching the surface, but let's, I'm going to give you a brief overview. So we've known for a long time that when postmenopausal patients received an aromatase inhibitor over tamoxifen, they had better outcomes. And so the thinking started to be, well, if, if postmenopausal patients are doing better with aromatase inhibitors, can we make our premenopausal patients postmenopausal so that we can give them the aromatase inhibitor? It's important to understand why premenopausal patients cannot get an aromatase inhibitor unless their ovaries are suppressed. And the reason for this is because essentially aromatase inhibitors inhibit the production of estrogen everywhere but the ovaries. And so if your ovaries are still working and you take an aromatase inhibitor, not only are you not suppressing that estrogen from the ovaries, but also the body senses an imbalance. It senses that all these extra ovarian estrogen sources are decreased or shut down. And it kind of tells the ovaries, hey, gear up and make some more estrogen. So that's why premenopausal women cannot be an aromatase inhibitor if they have any ovarian function. So came taking all that, these two large studies were developed and there have been others, but the two large ones are the text and soft trials. And they really attempted to look at was if we make premenopausal patients postmenopausal using ovarian suppression, can we give them an aromatase inhibitor or can they do tamoxifen with ovarian suppression and will they do better? Will they have better outcomes? Typically we do ovarian suppression with drugs like Lupron or Zolodex, which kind of temporarily shut down the ovaries. Um, but some people, depending on their age and genetics do, you know, do opt to get their ovaries removed. And that's a conversation choice of ovarian suppression could be a different conversation. But the, we've had the results from the Texan soft trials kind of dating back to 2014, which is really when we've started um, using this approach. And what the long-term results have shown us is that after even 12-year follow-up, there really is a benefit to adding ovarian suppression to premenopausal patients. The higher someone's risk of recurrence is, the more that they benefit from ovarian suppression. And I'm not going to go through all the numbers because the studies, there's different numbers and analyses, but we know that there is an improvement in survival when you add ovarian suppression. And the biggest improvement in survival tends to be when you do tamoxifen alone versus ovarian suppression with either tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor. There's still a benefit in most of the studies that we look at for AI with ovarian suppression compared to tamoxifen with ovarian suppression. But that difference is really tiny compared to tamoxifen alone. And so that's why when I have some patients on an AI with ovarian suppression who are really having a hard time with the side effects, I will sometimes switch them to tamoxifen with ovarian suppression and they do, they tolerate it much better. And that benefit really is derived, the benefit in reducing risk of recurrence and survival is mainly derived by the addition of ovarian function suppression. We know that the younger that someone is, 
a time of diagnosis, specifically under the age of 35, the more that they benefit from ovarian suppression. Patients that have needed chemotherapy, that had grade three cancers, that had larger tumors, all of those, again, would have that higher risk of recurrence and do benefit more from ovarian suppression than those who do not. Um, you know, in terms of how we decide exactly who gets it, it's 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 based on all of those factors and it's a very nuanced conversation between the patient and their medical team. But those are some of the factors that we look into. Right now, the general recommendations are five years of ovarian suppression. And then after five years, we remove that Lupron or that Zolodex. And sometimes people at that point are naturally in menopause on their own and can be on an AI alone. But if they're not and their ovaries kind of wake up and start making estrogen, then we'll usually do five years of tamoxifen. So you'll do five years with ovarian suppression, either tamoxifen or an AI, and then five years of tamoxifen. Um, you know, there are some people with really high risks of recurrence and their oncologists recommend 10 years of ovarian suppression. We just don't have the data on this at this point, but there are certain situations where that is considered. You know, I think it's important to keep in mind too that ovarian suppression, putting someone into menopause at such an early age may have some other health risks such as impact on cardiovascular and bone health. So we do have to really balance everything when we make those recommendations and really also pay attention to someone's side effects and quality of life. Question number five, is it possible for cancer grades to change from biopsy report to surgical pathology report? Absolutely. For a couple of reasons, if someone is getting neoadjuvant chemotherapy, the, the treatment can cause the cancer grade to change. Tumors are also heterogeneous. So when you take a biopsy, you're only taking one piece of it. And then when you remove it, you're obviously getting the whole cancer. So it is possible that some are, let's say, grade two in one spot and grade three in another. And you know, when, when you get the pathology, it's not necessarily that it's changed. It may just be that you didn't sample that part of it during the biopsy. So that's definitely something that happens um, a lot. And we always kind of keep both of those factors in mind when we do our staging and treatment recommendations. Question number six, how do you advise patients ease their anxiety whenever they get a new ache or a pain and not worry that their cancer is back? So this is a question that I get all the time. And I think in part, you know, we, we tell patients, well, you got to know what's, what is normal for you. And, and does this feel out of your normal? But the challenge is that after treatment, you don't necessarily know what feels normal. Your body is different. Everything feels different. You're getting used to recovery after treatment, after surgery, you may be on medications that cause symptoms like joint aches and pain. So how do you know what's the medication? What's your new normal? What's something to be concerned about? And I, and sometimes there truly is not a great answer to this. My, when I, when I talk to patients and what I recommend is you know, taking the time after active cancer treatment to start to really be in tune with your body. And I know that it's hard, but to the best of your ability. Um, but if something feels new and out of the ordinary and it's not going away within a week or two, I'd rather be proactive and work it up than to say, well, 
you know, it probably is nothing and let's give it a month. So I tend to be a little bit more conservative in terms of working things up rather than waiting, you know, um, for to see what happens. Now with that said, let's say you were feeling fine and you got put on a medication like an astrazole, an aromatase inhibitor, which causes joint aches and pains. And a week or two after starting to take the medication, your hips really bothering you. That's something that is maybe related to the medication. And we might say, wait, let's give it a couple of weeks. Let's see what happens. Does it get better or not? So a lot of that is in context with what you're taking, your medical history. Sometimes I'll have patients who say, you know what, I haven't worked out in a couple of weeks and I lifted weights and I think I overdid it. And now, you know, I'm having shoulder pain. So that again, could be because you lifted too heavy of a weight and you you know, your body wasn't ready for that yet. So again, that's something that we meet, we may say, well, let's, let's give that a little, you know, a couple of weeks and see what happens. Um, so, you know, again, it's really situational. Now, on the other hand, if all of a sudden someone's been on stable medication regimen, no recent surgeries, you know, everything is stable, ha- hasn't done anything out of the ordinary, and they've been having a week of, you know, really severe back pain, that's something that we may start with. Let's get some x-rays, maybe an MRI, maybe physical therapy. And I think it's important. And I do try to stress that, you know, even though someone has been treated for cancer, there's so many other things that pain can be that it is not cancer. But I know that people are going to be anxious and they're going to worry. And so you can't, my take on it is that you can't get rid of that worry or that anxiety or that stress, but it's how you react and how you manage that stress and and that worry is something that you can control. So my take on it is, okay, you're worried about it. Call your doctor, talk to them. Let's make an action plan about what we're going to do. We're going to give it a week. And if it doesn't get better, we're getting an image or we're going to try physical therapy or we're going to get an MRI, you know, whatever it is. Um, journaling or meditation is a great way for others to cope with anxiety. I also think having some of your mantras that you tell yourself whenever you do worry, but I think there's no right way to cope, but definitely making sure you're in contact with your medical oncologist or your whoever your healthcare team is when a new symptom arises so that you can make a plan. Because I do think that having a plan and knowing, okay, what else am I looking for? So for example, you know, let's say you have hip pain, you know, your oncologist may ask some additional questions to try to get a sense of, is this something that's maybe musculoskeletal from an injury? Or is it something that's a little bit more concerning that we should work up right away? So these are, you know, having that dialogue becomes really, really important. Question number seven, any info on Virginia, abemacyclib, Kiskali, ribocyclib with endocrine therapy for early stage breast cancer? So yes, lots of information here. So the abemacyclib and ribocyclib are classes of medications called CDK4-6 inhibitors. Another CDK4-6 inhibitor is Ibrant or palbocyclib. Palbocyclib, ribocyclib, and abemacyclib are all used in stage four metastatic breast cancer in combination with endocrine therapy. And when they were so effective in metastatic disease, there were several studies designed to look at them in early stage breast cancer in combination with endocrine therapy to see if we can reduce the risk of recurrence. 
The reason we don't talk about Ibrantz, that was a study called PALIS, and that study was negative. So it showed that Ibrantz did not have a benefit in early stage breast cancer to reduce the risk of recurrence. So that's why we don't give that drug in early stage. What is currently approved is abemacyclib with endocrine therapy in early stage breast cancer. And that is based on the monarchy study. So who is eligible for abemacyclib? And that eligibility has changed a little bit over the year since it was approved. But the current eligibility criteria are you have to have either. So you have to have hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer, number one. If you have four positive lymph nodes, you're eligible. If you have one to three positive lymph nodes, you also have to have a tumor that is greater than five centimeters, or it has to be grade three. So those are the qualifications. And if you meet those qualifications, then you would be offered abemacyclib in combination with endocrine therapy. Just recently at ESMO, the European Society for Medical Oncology, we had the five-year monarchy update. And so they looked at five years of giving abemacyclib and what benefit it has. And so when you give for five years, abemacyclib with endocrine therapy reduces the risk of developing an invasive recurrence anywhere in the body by 7.6% and reduces the risk of developing a distant recurrence, so anywhere outside of the breast and the axilla, by 6.7%. And this is really important because we only give a abemacyclib for two years, and yet the benefits are persisting beyond that two-year point, which is really good. And it, the results, these updated results, really further support the use of abemacyclib in patients with high risk, based on those qualifications I mentioned, hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer. Abemacyclib does have side effects. It's not always the most tolerated. Um, a lot of people may experience diarrhea, fatigue, joint pain, low blood counts. And so we do have to adjust the dose and that's absolutely okay to do. Now, ribocyclib or Cascali, this was based on the Natalie study. And the Natalie study was just presented in June of 2023 at the ASCO meeting, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, but it is not yet FDA approved. And so right now, without the FDA approval for patients with early stage breast cancer, they're getting abemacyclib if they meet the qualifications. The Natalie study actually had a slightly broader um, group of people who were eligible because they did not have to be lymph node positive if they were lymph node. So if they had any positive lymph nodes, they were eligible, or if they were lymph node negative and then had a tumor greater than two centimeters and a high KA67 greater than 20% or a high genomic risk based on oncotype or mammoprint or another profile were eligible. So there are some differences. And they also took ribocyclib for three years and not two years like we do with the bemocyclib. So we don't have that approval yet. So we're not really using it until we get that FDA approval, because we also don't know how the FDA will approve it. You know, sometimes they will only approve a certain population to receive the drug. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But just to show you that the what the Natalie study showed was that at three years, patients who took ribocyclib had a 3.3% improvement in disease-free survival, meaning they were alive 
without a recurrence of cancer. So that was 87.1% in patients who got endocrine therapy alone and 90.4%, so that's 3.3% increase for patients who got ribocyclib with endocrine therapy. Now you may be saying, wait a second, you just Abemocyclid, you said it was 7%, but that's remember the five-year update. So it's hard to compare the two. Uh, so for now, we're waiting. We're waiting to see if FDA will approve ribocyclib. Hopefully it will. Um, but in the meantime, we use abemocyclib for early stage, high risk, hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative breast cancer. Question number eight. Following your post about five-year results from Keno 522, is there any data to say how effective Zalota is for those who do not achieve a pathologic complete response? It seems as though as the pathologic complete response is the critical piece for triple negative breast cancer after all, and more important than the pembrolizumab. Uh, and more important than the pembrolizumab. Loaded question, lots to tackle here. So first let's talk about what the Keynote 522 study is. So this is for patients with early stage two or three triple negative breast cancer. This study was first published in 2020. And in this study, patients received neoadjuvant chemotherapy with Keytruda, pembrolizumab, or chemotherapy alone. And the chemotherapy that they received was Paclitaxel and carboplatin, followed by doxorubicin cyclophosphamide or epirubicin cyclophosphamide. Both doxorubicin and epirubicin are anthracyclines. It just some in some places of the country or the world they give epirubicin, but it's the same type of drug. I give um, doxorubicin, which is AC, and that's kind of the red devil. That's the doxorubicin. So what they found in this study at that very, very first analysis was that the addition of pembrolizumab improved pathologic complete response from 51% in patients who got chemotherapy with placebo to 64.8% in patients who got pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy. Now, we didn't know if that pathologic complete response actually translated to improved outcomes. And so then they published in 2022 event-free survival data, meaning how many people were alive without a recurrence. And what they showed was that in patients who had received chemotherapy with placebo, their three-year event-free survival was 76.8% and patients who received pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy, their event-free survival was 84.5%. So that translated into a 37% reduction in the risk of recurrence or death for people who received pembrolizumab. And so that quickly has become the standard of care. So far, what I've told you is that pembrolizumab increases the chances of getting a complete a pathologic complete response, and that translates into improvement in outcomes. After surgery, patients can continue on pembrolizumab for nine additional cycles. Now there is a study going on now. If you don't have a, if you do have a pathologic complete response, whether you really need those nine cycles, but until we have those results, you know, the standard remains to continue with pembrolizumab adjuvantly. Now, let's break it down as to 
what are the benefits with Pembro if you do or do not achieve a pathologic complete response. So this is a little bit about what my recent post was based on. Ad ESMO, the European Society for Medical Oncologists, they presented the five-year keynote update. And what they showed was that the five-year update for people, because remember, I just gave you the three-year data. So now here's the five-year data. But in people who received chemotherapy only, their five-year event-free survival was 72.3%, meaning out of the entire population, 72% of patients who received chemo alone were alive without a recurrence at five years. That increased to 81% of patients who received Pembro with chemotherapy. So there's about a 9% increase. But then they broke it down further into people who had a pathologic complete response and people who did not. So if you had a pathologic complete response and you received pembrolizumab, five-year event-free survival was 92%. That meant that only 8% of patients recurred and it was 88% for people who got chemo alone. So even if you had a complete response, the addition of pembrolizumab adds, it adds about 4% benefit. But for those who did not reach a, uh, achieve a complete response, this is where the data are pretty striking. If you don't achieve a complete response and you get chemo alone, you have a 50 um, event-free survival is 52%, meaning there's a 48% chance of risk of recurrence or death. That is, that's just devastating. When you add Pembro to that, the event-free survival goes up to 62%. So you go from 52% of people being alive without a recurrence to 62%. So Pembro adds about 10% in patients without a pathologic complete response, but that's still about 38% of patients who can relapse. And so it does tell us that pathologic complete response is important. This is where we clearly need more research. We really need to support and figure out how to improve outcomes for patients who do not achieve a pathologic complete response. And there's a lot of research ongoing in this space. Now, it's really important to note that this data does not include the addition of Olaparib if you have a BRCA mutation, or it does not include the addition of capecitabine to pembrolizumab adjuvantly if you do not achieve a complete response and you do not have a BRCA mutation. So where does the data for adjuvants Alota or capecitabine come in? This is based on the CREATE-X trial, which was published in 2017. And what they did was they took patients who had residual invasive disease after neoadjuvant chemotherapy and surgery and they randomized them to either receive capecitabine or placebo. Now, in this study, both patients with hormone receptor positive and hormone receptor negative were allowed, and they had to be HER2 negative. So you had both triple negative and hormone receptor positive patients included. And what were the results of CREATE-X? The benefit of capecitabine really is in the triple negative cohort and among patients with triple negative disease, the rate of disease-free survival, again, being alive without disease, was 69.8% in the capecitabine group and 56% in the control group. And so it showed that capecitabine 
reduce the risk of recurrence or death comparatively by 42%. So how do you put that note in that study? That was in 2017. So no one got pembrolizumab because we weren't doing that then. So now how do you figure out how do you kind of mesh that information together and we can't really do that yet. Um, we are giving patients who do not achieve a complete response pembrolizumab and typically adding capecitabine to that, or if they have a BRCA mutation, adding elaborib to pembrolizumab. But there are studies ongoing to kind of look at this at this sequence adjuvantly and maybe adding certain drugs um, to see if that's going to have a benefit. So that's ongoing. So to come back to that question, you know, we don't having a PCR is important. Yes, but you can't control that. So I think it's important for us to now figure out if we cannot if someone does not achieve a PCR, how do we improve their outcomes? And that's what the current research. So when we come back to the original question, yes, the data does show that outcomes are better if you have a pathologic complete response. However, there are things that we can do and are, are doing to improve the outcomes of patients who do not achieve a complete response. And I'm hoping that with the with time and with as the research and the studies continue, that we will be able to improve outcomes for patients who do not achieve a complete response. And when I, and when I share that data from the ESMO update to see those numbers and to see that high risk of recurrence if you do not achieve a complete response really was very tough and I completely recognize that. But I think it's also important to recognize that we're already improving outcomes with pembrolizumab because we didn't have that several years ago and the risk of recurrence was even higher without pembrolizumab. So we are making strides, not quickly enough, but we are getting there. Question number nine, if you've had benign breast biopsies, does that increase your breast cancer risk? In general, yes. Studies have shown that having a benign breast biopsy may increase your risk for breast cancer in the future. Some of this also depends on the type of breast biopsy result that you get. But yes, benign breast biopsies may increase risk. So that's why it's so important to do your breast cancer risk assessment and to try to um, figure out what your risk is incorporating that information so that you can be getting appropriate screening at appropriate intervals and with the correct modalities. And for certain benign but high-risk conditions like atypia, atypical hyperplasia, or lobular carcinoma in situ, we'll actually offer medications such as tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors to reduce the risk of recurrence. Those medications we know come with side effects, but we now have low dose tamoxifen, which is also a great option. It's five milligrams instead of 20 milligrams to reduce risk of developing breast cancer or in situ disease in the future. And it comes with a lot less side effects, but definitely make sure you're talking to your doctors about your breast cancer risk assessment. And I have several posts on that. So definitely check those out about how to do a risk assessment and things like that. All right, we have made it to the end. So question 10, thanks. If you stuck out with me this whole time, thank you. So let's get to number 10. Do you have any rules of thumb when we get busy and might need to make trade-offs among sleep, nutrition, or exercise? Is it better to focus on the one you think you need most or move an inch forward with each one? 
So great. This is a great question. And I think a good place to end. You know, I think it everything kind of ties together. So I will tell you that if I don't get a lot of sleep, my exercise is off. Like I, I don't, I, f- I feel more sore. I, I don't get the same results. I find that when I don't get sleep, my nutrition maybe is off. Um, you know, so I, I think that they're all so intricately linked. But when you are, when you don't have a lot of time, I think it can be hard to prioritize everything. I really believe that something is better than nothing. So that if I know, okay, well, I was going to do a 45 minute workout today, but I am exhausted. I really didn't get a lot of sleep last night. I might sleep for 30 minutes and then do a 10 to 15 minute walk or run or some movement just to get my blood flowing. And that helps me. Um, on, you know, on the other hand, I might say, you know what, I really need to make a healthy lunch today. So I'm going to maybe wake up five minutes early to be able to do that. So I think it really varies on where, you know, on you personally, what your day looks like, like what's going on in that day. But I think I really recommend people to get away from the all or nothing mentality and just try to find little five to 10 minute bursts of time that you can maybe, you know, again, get that little movement in if you didn't have time to do that big workout or um, to take five extra minutes and pack a healthier lunch or make a healthier dinner. Um, but it's, it's not, it's not easy. And I don't think, and because they're so intricately linked, I think if you focus on one, the others do get better. Um, but ultimately, I think we, we all have the busy weeks. And I think that in those busy moments, yes, things are going to go and you have to and what I, I like to come back to is what is what are my what are my non-negotiables and what are my priorities? And I think setting those non-negotiables and those priorities when you're not swamped and overwhelmed and busy is important. So then you can rely on those when you do get overwhelmed and busy. And for me, again, I'll just share my experience. You know, exercise in some form is a non-negotiable. So I know I may cut my workout short, but I'm getting some sort of movement in because that helps me to feel better. For other people, it's getting that seven to eight hours of sleep. Um, I would love to say that it is for me. I just, it doesn't always happen. Um, For some people, it's making that healthy lunch. So I think figuring out like, what is my non-negotiable when everything else is super busy? Like, what am I sticking with? I sometimes I have places by my hospital, my office that I can get a healthy lunch. So I will go to there's an Amazon uh, fresh by me and they have a really good salad bar. And so if I I will pick the workout and I will go there and get lunch um, so that I like if I don't have time. So I think just kind of figuring out where you can prioritize what your non-negotiables are becomes really important. Thank you all for making it to the end and for being here with me. I would love to get your take on this format. And if you find it helpful, I think it can, I think it can be helpful, but if you found it overwhelming with a lot of data, um, you want to see different types of questions, let me know. I'm definitely open to feedback as always. I am, you know, I'm grateful for any comments and reviews. And if you have a moment, you can, um, and if you can go to Apple Podcasts and take that one minute of time to leave a rating and review, it really helps me to grow the show, to bring it to new listeners. You can find me at Dr. Toplinski on all social media platforms. 
I love connecting with you and keep sending me your questions. Um, hopefully this is something that you guys find valuable and I would love to keep doing. Thank you all for being here and I will see you soon. Thank you.